Jesus to the end of the age. You see, there's a blend of proclamation and demonstration. Teach them to obey. It's word and deed. We are to learn and imitate the faith in word and deed. The author of Hebrews is playing the same game. You know, if you've been with us, that the sermon series is faith and practice. And through the first 12 chapters of the book of Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews is laying out the faith. He's telling us, teaching us what it means. And this last chapter, chapter 13, is the deeds part, faith and works and practice. So we have, he's been teaching us in word, and now in, in chapter 13 he's showing us what it looks like to live the faith what the faith looks like both in word and deed. He's laid out the facts, and now he's giving us the practice. So in the last few sermons, we've gone through different types of, of deed, different types of practice. And we talked about hospitality and care for strangers and, and care for prisoners and marriage and sex and money. These are ways that we live out the faith. And now the author gives us a more general principle, tells us to remember our leaders. I think it, it's in continuity with the other verses, the other um, exhortations to live the faith. But he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The author of, of Hebrews is writing to a Christian community that was likely planted by apostles, um, itinerant leaders who planted the church, showed them how to do it in word and deed, and then left. And so he's telling the community, remember how they did it. Remember their faith. Consider the outcome of, the, of their way of life and imitate them. He's saying, among these basic practices that I'm telling you about money and marriage and caring for outsiders, among these basic practices, remember how your leaders did the faith. Remember the way their lives expressed the gospel and follow their example. So more general principle, but I think it's, it's just in line with the other ones. And so where, where we're going with this is we're going to talk about our leaders, we're going to talk about the leader, and we're going to talk about our leadership now. Sort of the outline of where we're going. Pray with me first before we start that God would meet us and teach us. Lord, we need you and we invite you to, to wield the word on us. God, we pray that you would shape us by it. I invite you to, to pray for the person to your right and to your left, that God would encounter them in this time, that God would speak to them by his spirit. And pray for yourself Offer yourself up to God in this moment. Ask that he would instruct you and shape you by the gospel. And Lord, I, I need your help, God. I pray that you would speak. And I pray that you would use these words. Shape us, Lord. We love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so where we're going Show and tell. We're talking about our leaders, the leader, and our leadership. The first point is our leaders. So who are our leaders? Obvious answer, pastor, elders, those professional Christians, those who speak to us the word of God. In fact, I think that leadership just means influence, right? So it's, it's all of those who have a faith that we can imitate. All those who, who show us the faith. It's not just the professional Christians, but anyone who puts the faith in flesh. Anyone who lives the gospel. So who in your life displays the faith in flesh? Where do you get to see the gospel lived? A leader is anyone who shapes your view of life. See, showing and telling are so important precisely because Christianity isn't a theory and it's not a list of rules. It's this inextricable blend of word and deed. The gospel is a message, it's news, but it's news that changes everything. 
It's news that changes the way that you hope. It changes the way you think. It shapes you and molds you when you take it into heart. It changes the way you dream. It changes your view of flourishing. It changes who you want to be. It is news, but it's news that's lived. That's why we need leaders to put the gospel in flesh. So our spiritual leaders are those who put the word of God in flesh before our eyes, in word and deed, those who live the gospel. Now, the author of Hebrews is not advocating for an uncritical acceptance of all who claim Christ or all who have a title or a seminary degree or whatever it is. It's not an uncritical acceptance. He says, consider the outcome of their way of life. I think this is important because it guards against celebrity. It's not saying follow who can ever, whoever can draw a crowd or follow whoever can have a momentary impact. There's this like longitudinal testing. Where is their faith leading them? Who is, who is that leader becoming? Who would you become if you followed that leader? Where is this person's faith leading them? What kind of person will I become if I imitate the leader? I recently heard the kingdom of God described with the illustration of a pregnant woman. Bear with me. A pregnant woman, one who is a mother, right? There's a child growing in her. And yet, so in a very real sense, she is a mother. But in another sense, she's not quite yet a mother. There's a sense in which her motherhood is not fully realized. The kingdom is like this. Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. Victory is achieved. And actually, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. There's been an announcement that the kingdom has come, and yet, there's a way in which the kingdom isn't yet here, isn't yet realized. So just like, just like the kingdom, a mother is a mother, and yet there's a way in which her motherhood is not fully realized, right? But the proper outcome of, of pregnancy is birth. Right? The proper, proper outcome of pregnancy is a new life. That's the right way that these things should play out, right? So a pregnant mother is a mother and is becoming a mother. Here's the point. Acting pregnant doesn't do anything. Acting pregnant isn't fruitful. It doesn't create new life. It it won't cut it. So actually, you can say all the things that a pregnant mother would say. You can talk about baby names or how excited you are to be a mother, how nervous you are to be a mother, but it doesn't make any difference unless you're actually pregnant. You're just playing games unless there's something growing. When we're examining leaders, we're looking for kingdom growth. We're not looking for fakers who are just playing games. Because you can say all the right things, but unless there's something growing inside of you, the outcome of your faith is not one that we want to imitate. So this means that our leaders won't be perfect. They don't have to be perfect. And none of us will be perfect until the kingdom actually comes, until Jesus comes back and gives us glorified bodies, until we're resurrected. But in the meantime, there has to be growth. Because pregnant people grow. Their motherhood is being realized. Something's being birthed. We want to follow people whose lives are being taken over by something inside them who have the seed of something growing in their heart and in their life, whose concerns and dreams and plans are being centered around this thing that is coming. It's not just about saying the right things or quoting the right scriptures, but growing, showing evidence in their lives of the kingdom coming. 
That's the kind of leader we want to follow. What's the outcome of their faith? People who illustrate that the kingdom has arrived, even though it hasn't yet fully arrived. People who are growing towards maturity in the kingdom. Godly leaders are the way that we both learn and see the kingdom coming to fruition. Godly leadership is a whole life show and tell. Telling us about the kingdom, but demonstrating it's coming. This is why listening to sermons from your favorite pastor in New York or Minnesota or wherever isn't good enough. It's not wrong, but it's not enough because you need a life-on-life contact. You have to be able to see the grit of their life. How is the kingdom coming to bear in their life? Because Christian living is caught as much as it's taught. So this first application when looking at our leaders is guard the privilege of leadership over your life. Our our imagination for how life can be, our categories for concerning what to hope for and what to strive for will be shaped by those we see. Our categories will largely come from what we see modeled in the world, in flesh. So consciously or unconsciously, in the church or outside of the church, we are being shaped by our leaders. We're being taught how to be in the world. We're being taught how to be human. We're learning how to be in the world from examples that are set before us. We're going to learn a way of being in the world. So the question is, is it going to be a godly leader that shapes you, or is it going to be something else? Guard the privilege of leadership over your life. You can't imitate fakes. It won't be fruitful. There's no shortage of fruitless Christian leaders to point to who can say all the right things but aren't actually growing, aren't actually giving birth to the kingdom. Similarly, there's no, there's no shortage of fruitless leaders in the world outside of the church. We can't imitate fakes. We can't imitate the leaders of this world either. Guard the privilege of leadership. Just think of the weight that this places on Christian leaders, though. Right? It means that they're not, they're not only meant to teach the word, they're meant to embody it, to show it to the world, and, and more than that, to live in the light in a way that allows people to see the kingdom growing in them. Letting people into their world, saying this is what the kingdom looks like. That's what our leaders are meant to do. And actually, it, it might seem like a strange exhortation from the the author of Hebrews, right? Like, we're Christians. We follow God, right? So it is a little weird for a human to say to another human, follow me. That should strike us as odd, I think. But actually, the author of the book of Hebrews is not at all alone in the New Testament in doing this. If you look at the life of Paul, he says this over and over again. He tells Timothy, live in such a way that, that set an example for the men in your church to know how to be a godly man. He says the same thing to Titus. And Paul himself says, imitate me as I, what does he say? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul says, I'm following after Jesus, so follow after me. Paul exhorts all, that he, all, all the ones that he leads to do the same thing. So there's this long chain of show and tell that Paul is leading us into. But the point is that consciously and persistently, godly leaders are pointing to the leader. They're saying, I'm not the main thing, consciously and persistently reminding their followers, I'm not the source of this. I'm not the end game. There's one source. We have one leader, one model, one example, the leader, Jesus. 
he's our leader. He's the ultimate example. He's not just the faith enfleshed. He's God enfleshed. Jesus has initiated, he's inaugurated his kingdom in his coming and living and eating with us and welcoming outsiders and weeping over sin and dying for us and in his triumph over death and the grave. And then he sent out the sinners that he called his friends, the apostles, and said, go and tell everyone. Go show them. Go teach them how to live like me. The early Christians called themselves the way, the way of Jesus. We're doing it the way that Jesus taught us how to live. And in Antioch, the church was so diverse and complicated without any unifying ethnic identity or cultural heritage or social class that people didn't know how to refer to them. So they called them little Christs. The church was made up of little Christs, and each individual was a little Christ in the place of Antioch. Little Christ is where we get the word Christians. That's what Christian means, little Christ. You are to be a representation of the way of Jesus in your life. And then throughout the ages, more of them told more of them and showed them how to live the way that Jesus did. And then more told more. And those crossed oceans and told more. And those crossed continents and told more. And yeah, there were bumps and bruises along the way, and sinners lost sight of the leader and followed sin-stained leaders and got confused and followed worldly leaders instead of our sinless Savior. But God, in his mercy, is blessing this movement. He sent his spirit to empower it. Actually, Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We cannot lose. Jesus has said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Do you see that that means that the church is meant to be an offensive weapon in the world, relentlessly pushing back the forces of darkness? The gates of hell will not stand against Jesus' church. The church is meant to be relentlessly pounding the gates of hell until they fall, until new life comes, until the kingdom is manifest in this world, relentlessly pushing back the forces of darkness and injustice and sin until the kingdom is born. And we can't lose. That's the movement that Jesus has started. And through persecution and oppression, little Christs have held to this conviction. Telling the world that Jesus has defeated death and has shown us a better way to live. That's been the message that carries this movement along. Down through the centuries and for millennia now, they continue to build Communities that celebrate the victory of Christ and say, there's one king and it's Jesus. And he's inaugurated a better way to live, a better way to be human. He's the founder and finisher of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith. Christ, in his incarnation, life, death, and victorious resurrection, and in his future coming, is the pattern against which this whole movement is to be measured. He's the initiator of the whole show and tell. And more than that, it's the message of his coming and kingdom that we are to imitate, to demonstrate and proclaim. He's the content and the full manifestation of our hope. He is the message of hope, and he is hope embodied. Because he alone has disarmed death. There's only one who's achieved victory in the world. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you that victory over sin and death that Christ has won is offered to you. That you can have a relationship with the most high king and creator by simply placing your faith in him. Though you don't deserve it. 
The Bible says while we were enemies, Christ died for us. In fact, if you're here today at all, this church is here today because people down through generations, from age to age, have said in word and deed that this crucified king and his cruciform kingdom is better than anything the world has to offer. That's what we get to be a part of. That's the game of show and tell that you're invited into. This enormous game of show and tell down through the ages, through generations, has come to this valley in this time. We have heard and believed the message. And before us and for generations in the past, we have examples of people who have lived faithfully as witnesses to the new life that Jesus offers. So the question is, will we carry the torch? Will we make disciples and teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded? That's the adventure that Christians, that little Christ, get to live. Honestly, personally, on my worst days, that adventure seems like a burden. There are times when that obligation and responsibility feels like toil. But when I'm seeing clearly, when I'm experiencing the gospel in my heart, in other words, on my best days, there's nothing more exciting than this. This is the grand story. And you and I get to play a part in it in a a meaningful way. We get to be used by God to initiate, to build and bring his kingdom in the world. There's nothing more exciting than that. So the last point is our leadership. Do you know that God has made you responsible for showing and telling Jesus' reign in your life, in your context, wherever it is that you have influence, wherever it is that you are a leader in this valley, maybe in your home or in your friendships or in your marriage, we are to play our part in this grand show and tell. Showing the world that Jesus has exemplified a better way of being human. A better way to live. And telling the world that there is no other king but Jesus. The text says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The twist here is that if if faith is learned by enfleshed examples in our community, Who will teach us? Because it can't just be the full-time Christians. (laughs) They can do their part, but there's simply not enough staff members in this church, elders in this church, for all of us to get to see the grit of their life and how the gospel is being birthed in it. We need forms of peer leadership and discipleship and community where the gospel is being displayed in unguarded moments. We need it. Which means we need sold-out believers letting the gospel infiltrate our hearts and lives to show the church and the watching world what it looks like to live this hope. What it looks like to live forgiven. It takes giving over our hearts to the lordship of a crucified Savior. It takes the Spirit of God conforming our hearts and lives to the image of Jesus. Making us like Christ. Living the way of Jesus, living the life. 
It's actually our obligation as torchbearers in this generation, in this valley, to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel in this community. Do you want to do that? And if not, why not? What could be better? Francis Schaeffer says it like this. He says, Christ's death, which was the subject of thousands of years of prophecy, is a historic fact in the past. And we will be raised from the dead in the future. But there is to be a positive exhibition in the present history now. God did not mean that there should be no evidence of the reality of the victory of the cross between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. God has always intended that Christians should be the evidence, the demonstration of Christ's victory on the cross. God has always intended that Christians should be the evidence, the demonstration of Christ's victory on the cross. We are to show and tell that our God wins, that his kingdom is surely coming. The application from this last section is steward the authority that God has given you. Our church is meant to be a leading influence in this community. Showing the community what it looks like to live as a people with hope. Bearing witness to this great story and welcoming others into it. Showing the gospel to the world. Living our hope. In his letter to Titus, Paul was giving practical instructions to Titus in chapter 2. Titus is the leader of a church in Crete. And Paul tells them, among other things in chapter 2, be sober, don't slander, be kind, don't steal. It's a list of things to do, ways to live out the gospel. And his conclusion is, so that, do all these things so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That they may adorn the doctrine, make it beautiful. The NIV says it this way, so that in every way they will make the teaching of our God and Savior attractive. Our discipleship and sanctification is not just a primary, uh, sorry, not just a private and personal matter. It's not just about you, it's not just a you and Jesus thing. In fact, as a church, each of us has an interest in the sanctification of each other because we want to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in this valley. This is actually the proper starting point for accountability. We have all these ideas about what accountability should be. Accountability is not friends who agree to guilt each other into living for Jesus or doing their disciplines. It's not about policing each other's lives. Accountability, properly understood, is saying, I care about your discipleship because I care about the glory of God in this place. I care about God's glory and the coming of his kingdom in this time and this place, and I want to see the kingdom birthed in your life. I want to see Jesus treasured and the gospel beautified in your life. For his glory, for God's glory, and for your good, I know it would be good for you. For his glory and your good and for the good of those around you who need the kingdom hope to be shown to them. That's proper accountability. And that's the obligation we have to each other as church members is to to push one another to see the kingdom birthed in our lives. In everything, in every context, in any context, we are to adorn the gospel, to make the teaching about our Lord and Savior beautiful, to show its beauty and to tell of our hope. That's the role of the membership of this church, contextualizing and enfleshing the gospel in daily life on a corporate and individual level, in the workplace, in your home, to our children, as parents. It's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. What a privilege and responsibility it is to be a father. 
I'm not a father. I hope one day to be a father. But when I think about godly leaders in the home, I think about my own father, my own dad. There's, it's, I mean, I probably don't even know the depth of how influential he's been in teaching me how to be a Christian man. He was a Bible teacher for a while at our church, and I've learned so much from his explanation of the word and his exaltation of Christ, but there's no doubt I've learned more from his example. Just a couple areas. The way that he loves his children, the way that he loves me, he'll just send me a text and say, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of who you're becoming. He's teaching me about God's covenant love for his children. You see, I'm, I'm learning about God's love through my father's love, the way that he loves my mom. Something like the last four years in a row, we've done New Year's resolutions as a family, and he's publicly said before the whole family, my New Year's resolution is to love your mom better. I'm learning about what it means to be a husband. The way he and my mom practice hospitality, showing brotherly love to strangers. My mom definitely has the gift of hospitality. My dad is more introverted, but at work has to be more extroverted, so he comes home pretty tired. But you wouldn't know it if you were a guest in our home because his heart overflows for those who are staying with us. There, there are many people, some of whom whose names I'm sure I don't know, not family members, who would say that they, my dad thinks of them as his children. In fact, most of them know where in the line they are when he says, you're the ninth son I never had. My dad has only had four, that's a lot, but only four sons by blood. But there are many sons adopted into the family who know where they fit in the lineage. That's hospitality. The way that he wrestles with God. I've watched multiple times. He's called me into his room and said, Christopher, this is how I'm experiencing God, and I, I don't know what to do about this. What do you think? Having an open, open heart and, and letting people into the, the way that God is changing his life. When I was little, we used to pray together every night. And um, I remember he would pray, God, or yeah, Father, I'm going to read the quote. Father, make Christopher into the man that you've created him to be. A couple months ago, I was praying for some of my students, and I unthinkingly, unthinkingly prayed that phrase. Father, make them into the people you've created them to be. And I was stunned. Because I, honestly, I'd forgotten it for all these years until it came out of me. Hearing his prayers over me and the way that he brings his concern to me for God has shaped the way I view the world, has shaped the way I long for flourishing in people, has shaped the man that I want to become. That's godly leadership in the home. That's bringing and building the life of the kingdom in his context. I want to imitate that. Maybe it's in the home, maybe it's not, but somewhere God has given you influence. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's with your spouse or children. Maybe it's just in the life of your friends. The question is, how can you show and tell the gospel in this context? In word and deed, in every area. One of my friends calls this gospeling yourself out of every situation. Maybe out of is the wrong direction. Maybe into, I don't know. That's what he says. But asking yourself in every situation, how do the life teaching, death, resurrection, victorious reign, and coming kingdom of Christ affect this situation right now? What is the Spirit of God influencing me toward today, right now? What does it look like to live forgiven in this moment? To live as one approved of in Christ? To live as one over whom God has said you are beloved and worthy? 
it is the responsibility of those Christians with influence, big or small, to show and tell the gospel in word and deed. Because the truth is that our lives are missed. And they'll be over like that. We have a few decades to carry on this grand story of show and tell, to make disciples, to bear the torch, to be fruitful. We have this one wisp of a chance to play a part in the grand adventure of all of history. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Run the race with endurance in the short time that you have. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the adventure that you invite us into. We thank you for modeling, embodying, and achieving our hope. We pray that you would by your spirit, invade our hearts and lives, God, that the gospel hope would be born in us, that you would shape us by the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you have loved us and given yourself up for us. And we pray that you would um, use us to make disciples and carry the torch. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So every week we do communion because we are about showing and telling what Jesus did. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. He said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So we're here remembering the work that Jesus has done to save us and sanctify us, to give us a, a purpose and a hope. So if you're in Christ this morning, we'd love it if you would take communion. Um, if you... You probably know, but we come down the aisle this way and then take the bread and the cup and then circle back to your seat, and you can take it whenever you want. Um, I'll be in the back among others if you want to be prayed for or pray for me or someone else back there. Um, if you're not a Christian today, we're really glad you came, and we hope that you continue to investigate the hope that we live. Uh, we ask that in this time you not take communion, but I do recommend that you take Christ during this time. Uh, so perfectly consider what it would look like to center your life around the hope that Jesus offers. Um, I guess that's all. Let's take communion.